welcome to Drive Digital Success, your behind-the-scenes podcast about Formula One and the technology driving it. Presented by Chris Medland and Mandy Carter. Powered by IONOS, first-class cloud and IT infrastructure. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Drive Digital Success podcast from IONOS. I'm Chris Medland, and alongside me again is IONOS Head of Marketing, Mandy Carter. Hello, Mandy. Hi, Chris. Now, we're also going to be joined today by one of the perhaps more unseen but crucial members of the Haas F1 team in Chief Information Officer, Gary Foote. Gary, thank you very much for joining us. I know you're a busy man, and it's the off-season, and that doesn't mean you get time off. Now, just for the listeners, can you introduce yourself? Tell everybody here that wants to know more about data who you are and what you do at Haas. Yeah, of course. Uh, so I'm Gary Foote. I'm Chief Information Officer at Haas. So I've been here since the team started, actually, when we first raced in March 2016. Previously, I was at Mercedes. I was there for about eight years or so, I think. Before that, it was Braun. Before that, it was Honda and a couple of other teams. So in, in F1 for quite a while now. And I came on board with Haas to sort of lead the technical operation, sort of put the team together, put the infrastructure together. We had quite an aggressive timeline, um, sort of fairly well documented. We got the racing sort of license in 2014, but we really didn't start putting the team together until late 2015 and obviously had to get the car out in March 2016. So it was a very aggressive sort of growth strategy. And I was brought in to kind of put the team together, build it up. But, you know, now we're starting to to mature that IT function and the technical function, you know, to get us into a more sort of polished state. So what does a CIO do on a day-to-day basis in an F1 team? And is it similar to the same sort of role in in other businesses or is it very unique to F1? I think a bit of both, actually. I mean, you know, we're sort of stripping out the glamour of the sport and the racing. You know, we're an advanced manufacturing company at the end of the day. And, you know, a CIO plays a great role in all of those organisations, you know, putting that technical stack there, sort of that liaison between the board and the sort of the financial business side of it, you know, and then the operation side when you're creating your product. You know, in our case, our product is our race car. And so that's where maybe it becomes a little bit unique. We're, you know, we're a very heavily data generating sport. We have an awful lot of infrastructure. We carry a lot of infrastructure, much more than maybe people realize behind the scenes. The car runs on that infrastructure and that data. So maybe there's quite a lot of reliance on there. So, you know, without that technology, you know, the car just doesn't go around the track. But how did you get into this role yourself in terms of your career path? You've mentioned all the teams you worked for. Was it always an aim to become a CIO at a team or was it that you kind of found your way into it? Is there a clear route for someone? That's a good question. I mean, I'm I'm a huge racing fan, you know, into cars since, you know, single digits and very much still I'm a four wheel guy rather than a two wheel guy, which is a very controversial thing in, in, in racing world. I don't think I deliberately set out to get into Formula One. I was very keen on, you know, going down the IT path. You know, I've, I've been playing with technology since, you know, programming BBC Micros back in my early teens. But coming out, of, I, I did a computer science degree at university and I came out of that and I started working by accident, really, for Cosworth. So, you know, at that time in the road car sort of area. But there was a route into F1 that I spied very early on. So within sort of 12 months of starting my career, that's when I probably got my eyes on F1, but only because I had that tiny first step in, you know, working for Cosworth back then. You know, had I not worked for there, I don't know. You know, I would still have been a huge motorsport fan, but I don't think I would have been targeted into F1. But once I knew there was a way to get in, then that was what I focused on. And now you are in F1 and, and you're here heading up the operations at Haas. How does the structure work here? Are you overseeing a specific team below yourself or are you basically across the whole team? Yeah, it, it's a very unique company. You know, some of the listeners might not realise that you know, we're very different to some of the other F1 teams that are up and down the grid. And we're much smaller. We have a very lean headcount. And we operate a sort of a model where we choose to outsource as much as we can. There's the very well-documented sort of partnership that we have with Ferrari where we choose to procure quite a lot of components from them. 
but there's actually quite a lot of suppliers behind the scenes that we also choose to procure for where where other teams would typically manufacture that in-house so that does change sort of the setup of the company as i say it creates a very lean company quite you know quite agile we quite like the ability to kind of twist and, and mold it was quite a controversial business model sort of when it was first brought out but i think it's becoming a little bit more accepted now but my role within that is uh, actually across three companies. Uh, Haas F1 team as an entity is made up of a US firm, a UK firm and an Italian firm. And then we have different business functions based in different locations. My remit oversees all three of those. And I have technical teams in all three locations. Well, as someone who's worked at other F1 teams, they've probably seen a different kind of setup and business model. How much do you enjoy the one you've got or how much of a challenge is it to have three separate companies that you oversee? Oh, it's a great challenge. You know, it's, it's different, but in a good way. You know, there's unique challenges that are introduced into this business model. You know, there's a lot of advantages, you know, and, and you know, Gunther will happily talk for hours about the advantages it brings. But behind the scenes, there are some, some challenges that, especially with the technical function, you know, now we've got data movement across, you know, continents and, you know, big data, we generate so much of it. And we have people who want eyes on that data in all of those countries and they all want it at the same time that introduces unique challenges but you know that's part of the fun i was gonna say so how do you go about tackling those challenges what are these maybe unique aspects for this f1 team that you have to put in place to make that sort of setup work i think key is tackling any sort of challenges is to look at the requirement you know who needs what where and when you know once you've understood what you need to do then you can start to define the solution that does that so you know very early on when we were you know still before we'd even put a car around the track we wanted to understand you know who's going to be doing what with what data where do they need it how often do they need it how quickly do they need it you know are there subsets of data you know we talk a lot in various forums about you know performance reliability and safety and those subsets of data that come off the car you know so who needs what and where you know we'll look at that you know from a safety perspective you know that's real-time data and it's needed you know there and then but if it's maybe sort of you know retrospective performance data that can maybe come later but then there's business data behind the scenes you know we often concentrate on car on the car data and that's what everybody loves to look at but actually behind the scenes there's business data in other talks i call it boring data but it should i shouldn't say that but it, but it kind of is you know you've got finance data you've got hr data and then you've also got an awful lot of focus in the last few years on data protection data security and data integrity so as soon as you start moving data around a global landscape just like any multinationals they all face these challenges you know we're just a much smaller firm a much smaller company that have got to deal with those challenges before we get really into the detail of of some of the challenges then that you face what about for you in terms of your typical working day day day-to-day kind of setup is is that something where it is dealing with data across different channels is is that simply it making sure everyone has access to everything they need or is there a lot more to the role i think there's quite a bit more to it so talking about the sort of core technological function we've obviously got the infrastructure that underpins the company that could be back at the fixed site so in the uk the us and italy Obviously at the racetrack as well, that, you know, that sort of mobile infrastructure that travels around to all the races, obviously core to running the car. But, you know, behind the scenes, there's a lot of other sort of technological things that we need to look at. You know, data governance is another massive one, you know, data retention. And, you know, we spend all this money generating tons of data. Then we have to sort it. We need to organize it. We need to make sure that we're retaining what we need to, not retaining what we don't. You know, one of the things that we want to make sure we do at Haas is not build up this legacy set of infrastructure and set of data and these old systems. You have to read about these companies that are bogged down 
by legacy infrastructure and legacy data. You know, we've got an opportunity as quite a young team to be able to make sure we put the foundations in early on to make sure that doesn't become a problem as the company matures. Uh, a question to you, Mandy. Is it a challenge or for Ionos to work with a team across multiple bases as well as at the racetrack? Or does it not matter where Haas accesses its data from? I mean, that's one of the main benefits and reasons for using the cloud. You can access data anywhere from pretty much any web-enabled device these days. And beyond that, cloud enables you to mirror data across different data centers in different regions. So user will pick up data from the nearest cloud instance, which you know helps reduce latency and basically speeds the data retrieval faster to them, um, which is great. If you think about it, most large corporations have global presence in multiple regions, right? So Ionis is no different. We are headquartered in Germany, but we have regional offices and data centers all over the world, including the UK, where I am, and, and the US. And now, I mean, because of Corona, this has grown exponentially. So if you think about it, we have thousands of employees working across thousands of locations because everybody's home office or living room has now become a remote office. So this is probably true of Haas and really most large organizations out there today. Cloud actually makes it much easier for multiple working points right now. And how much growing is Ionos doing with Haas? As Gary puts it, the company is maturing. So is it attractive to be part of a team that is going through such a process? I mean, absolutely. That was actually one of the points that made Haas such an attractive partner for Ionis, us. Um, They are clearly a challenger in the F1 circus. And while we are a leader in Europe and in Germany, on an international scale, we are also still growing. You know, we are very much in that growth phase. A great part of being a challenger is the need to work harder and with ingenuity. And, you know, it's a green light to think differently and test new things and to try to find that way to break through into the marketplace and be better and do better. And these are all principles that Ionos and Haas share together. So it's great. We feel like we're both kind of working towards similar goals. On a day-to-day basis, we learn a lot from each other, right? So just in the course of the past year of our relationship, we've worked on a multitude of projects together, some which have been implemented, like migrating the Haas website over onto the INS cloud and using virtual machines in our cloud to fast track their software testing cycles. And then there are quite a few beefier, kind of sexier projects in the pipeline for this year, like supporting Haas's thermal analysis tools, their vehicle performance analysis tools, and hopefully rolling out computation fluid dynamics. So some really pretty cool techie stuff that will help elevate their performance in the end. And, you know, for us, the benefit for us is with each of these projects comes learning on both sides, but certainly for us. And we take all of those learnings and apply them to our other customers. So it's not just Haas that's benefiting from these beefy projects and our learnings, but, you know, we're helping to elevate other customers as well. And so everybody's benefiting from the partnership. And Gary, you mentioned just now about being a young team and avoiding legacy infrastructure. Is that something where Haas has an advantage, I guess, because it's the newest F1 team on the grid? Were you able to look at everything, especially as someone who was here from the very start, and go, you know what, this is where it doesn't really work on other teams, or maybe it's a bit more difficult and not perfect for our setup, but because we're new, we can have a clean sheet of paper and we can work out what's going to work best for us? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. So what we were able to do is take lessons learned. Um, you know, when I put the team together, I deliberately brought in a mix of people with F1 experience and also people without. I deliberately wanted that sort of combination of staff. And so I brought people in from a couple of other teams and we were able to say, you know, what does your team do well? I had my experience from Mercedes, an absolutely fantastic team, and they did so much so well. I was able to replicate that, but I had to 
adapt it for the size of our organization, both, you know, in terms of headcount and, and financially. You know, that's a team that had much more resources than we had at our disposal. Uh, and also a lot of history. You know, I think it's the same you do with any sort of challenge and, and, and solution. You, you pick out the bits that you need to do and you implement them in the right way. But then I also wanted to make sure that I brought in staff from non-motorsport teams because I wanted to see, you know, how do they do it, you know, in the public sector where money, you know, finances are maybe more heavily scrutinized and value is, is really important. You know, Haas F1 is built around the principle of value you know we've got budget but we're very careful on how we spend it so you know public services then i wanted to look at other manufacturing companies so you know i tried to bring in some some expertise from there and say what do other companies that make stuff how do they do it that's outside of the racing world because racing's really unique it's got quite a peppered history from a financial perspective you know there's the you know the in many days gone money was the thing you thought about last I think that's changed now. Every team, every, every CIO, I think at every team would agree that money and value is now quite high up on the agenda, especially with the budget cap. So just on that, Gary, how do you judge success in your role? Is it about the car and its performance or are there other factors you look at to judge success? I think both. You know, I mean, we're a team. So when the car does well or the drivers do well, or, you know, whether that's in raw performance or reliability, then I think that reflects well on me and my team and our objectives. But then also behind the scenes, I've got to underpin our business. And so as long as the business is functioning, you know, maybe people are getting paid, maybe people are being organized, maybe, you know, business system uptime, you know, whatever it happens to be, there's the two sides. We've got to win and lose as a team together. That's hugely important in a sport, but also behind the scenes, I've got a, just a business to prop up. You mentioned when the driver's being successful or the car's being successful. Let's focus on, I guess, what maybe is the fun data, the stuff that revolves around stuff that's on track. In your perspective, the nice, easy question. Which is more important, the data you get or the driver in the car? Oh, I say I'm a tech guy and the drivers aren't in the room. So I, I would say it's uh, it's tech first. I think it's important that we provide the driver with the tools that he or her needs to do their job, right? So there are drivers that can take, you know, a tough car and get the best out of it. But there are drivers that can take a tough car and, you know, eclipse everybody else. You know, it takes both, you know, the pilot and the craft. But I think the craft comes first. It's our job as a team to provide the driver with the best possible tool that they can to do their job. But then we hand it to them and we say, do your best. So if we focus on that part first, then how key is data to the car development side of things, especially as a company that's split across three locations? How do you make sure that essentially those three all interlock and connect so that everyone can develop the best car possible? With difficulty. (laughs) Um, So I think, first of all, yeah, we understand what data we're pulling and what it's used for. So if we're taking data off the car, for instance, you know, there's the data that is having an effect on real-time decision-making, primarily at the circuit, but we also do bleed that out to to our facilities. So that can be, you know, safety, performance, reliability, and now different subsets of data will go to different engineers or different staff members. And they're making real-time decisions. You know, there'll be some people who are looking at the setup of the car. So taking in some of that data, understanding it, and then saying, hey, for the next run, let's tweak this, let's tweak that. There may be other people that are looking from a reliability pressures and sensors in real time, and they can say, hey, I think the car's got a problem coming. Let's pull it out before something you know serious happens. That's the real-time data. You then you've got your retrospective data, which is where it comes into development that you mentioned. So at that stage, then we're looking at retrospective analysis of the data. You know, how can we make that car better, either in the short term, you know, maybe for the next race, but also in the longer term, you know, whether that's the next generation, next year of a car. You know, certainly when it comes to things like aero, you can't make aero, you know, fundamental aero changes on events. So that data feeds back into the design team and then it starts working its way 
through the, the what we you know the aero development process be that from an idea in a designer's head hey looking at this data i think i can make the car go a bit quicker by doing this and then it goes through the you know into the, into the wind tunnel process into the you know the cfd and the, the high performance compute process you know which which sits under my team and that's a big part of proving out an aerodynamic change before it gets made into a physical part which has you know quite a lot of expense before it gets put onto the race car so there's a whole spectrum there from real time i mean really milliseconds seeing a piece of information and, and making a decision on it right through to some data having an effect on a previous year you know next generation car or even multi-year generation is it fair to say that the real-time data is maybe the more crucial because you need it there and then to make certain decisions and in that sense is there a way you have to protect it or send it to make sure that it can be easily understood and accessed i think it's hard to differentiate it as being more crucial all has its job to play in terms of real-time data you know it's usually having an effect on that event so yeah absolutely it's crucial but you know one could argue that data that is looked at you know retrospectively and a picture built up could have an effect on a whole generation of a car and that would affect every race in a season you know I think you could ask each person out on out on the factory floor that question and you get a different answer. The key thing from my side is making sure that the right people have the data that they need. You mentioned protecting it. It's very much about saying in order to focus somebody's time on what they need to do, I need to present them with the data that they need. You know, and that's not just telemetry data, you know, that might be historical data it might be you know mechanical or setup data you know so i would call traditional file data documents you know that there's a lot of that flowing around to and fro you know so one engineer might send out a document that shows the setup of his car and he'll be asking maybe 15 20 30 people for feedback on that that's just as important as the telemetry that's coming off the car where does the driver's feedback fit in like how much of that counts as data and how much of it is too subjective and you have to focus on the hard data that comes off the car the driver is actually a really crucial link in putting together what we see in data to what is happening in real terms that sort of collaboration and sort of you know the deltas between the two right so You've got to understand, okay, we're looking at the data and we're seeing this particular thing. Then we speak to the driver and he says, yeah, that is what's happening with the car. Great correlation bang on or what more often than not, quite honestly, is where we say, okay, the data is saying that, you know, this is happening to the car and the driver says, well, no, that's not what I'm feeling. And at that point you've got a data correlation issue. That's where the engineers who are, you know, with years of experience under their belt can say, ah, okay, I know what that correlation issue is. And they can use that data to make the right change. If we went purely on data, I think actually you could run into quite a spot of bother quite quickly because what you're doing there is you're not taking into account all those variables that only a human can do. And, you know, you've got the driver is is a human and he's got all his or her senses available to them and has the engineer and you've got those all those ingredients go into a pot get stirred out and out of the back of it becomes a decision you know whether that's the driver needs to take a line and do it differently or an engineer needs to set the car up differently there's a decision made and it's either you know the right decision or it's the wrong decision it's almost like you can see my notes because i was about to ask you actually about the human aspect of it It, it, has formula one though especially in your time within it has it developed has there been more of a reliance on data and that sort of feedback and is it an ever shrinking kind of window of uh, reliance on the human factor yeah i think so as i said the human still plays a huge part of it but that ratio is changing but in a good way because what we're allowing the human to do is focus their skills and their time, right? There's only a finite amount of time and, and energy almost that a member of the team can put into their job function. And that can be an IT person through to a mechanic, to a, to a driver, to an engineer. And so what we do with data and the technology is we're allowing them to focus the bit that they can do, you know, to just the bit that the, the technology can't, if that makes sense. So 
ultimately what I'm able to do is take care of a lot of the work that, you know, roll back 10 years, 20 years, an engineer would have been doing a particular amount of work. If I've taken three quarters of that away, you know, they don't sit down and, and drink tea for three quarters of that time. They focus those energies on that quarter that's left and they just do a really, really good job of it. So as the data to human workload ratio changes, all that does is it just allows the human factor to get ever better at what they do, whether that's a driver or, or someone looking at the data. When we talk about gathering some of this data, where does it all come from? Is it always sensors on the car and only things controlled by you? Or are there other data points at the track, for example? Where do you gather the data from? Yeah, in terms of if we're talking just about sort of the racing side of it and less about the business side, it comes from quite a few places. Video is playing quite a big part of the landscape in the last sort of 10 to 12 years. There's been quite a shift in, in the use of video and a high resolution video, you know, and, and we get video feeds from all over the place. So we've got cameras in the garage, we've got cameras in all of the pit stop gantries. So I'll give you a really good example where we talk about that mix of human performance. We, you know, we have cameras that look over the top of each person on the pit stop. And after a pit stop, they're able to go back and look at themselves and say, did I get that wheel on right? And we have performance coaches that will work with the guys and girls on the pit crew to say, here's how you can improve your technique here. That's a, you know, a, a good example of where we're using the technology to influence the performance of, of the team members. So yeah, video, there is obviously car data. We have, there's two types of car data. We've got telemetry data that comes over the radio. So that's your sort of your real time data. And that is typically, I'm, I'm generalizing heavily here, but that's, data that the uh, the engineers and the team are looking at to make those real-time decisions. Is the car safe? That, that, that is absolutely wrong. Is it going to maintain reliability? Is it going to get to the end of the run that it's on? And is it going to be quick? Is there any really small changes we can make? Then you've got sort of a subset of data that's, that's stored on the car. And you, you'll often see when the, on the TV when the car pulls in, you'll see a, a cable go into the side of the car. That's called an umbilical, and that will download a much greater data set. And that's that retrospective data that I sort of mentioned where that will, we pile that off. You know, we do, we obviously have people at the circuit looking at it, but we actually send that data all off around the world and we have people looking at it, you know, the moment it lands in more sort of medium to longer term decision making on that. On that front though, the, probably the crucial part of my perspective when I think of it is surely it's all well and good getting data, taking things off the car, or, you know, get, having a set of numbers or a set of data that says this is what's happening. But understanding that and kind of interpreting it quickly surely is actually the key point because if, if you guys have all the data in the world but can't understand it, that must be pointless. Yeah, very true. You know, the sport is generating so much data now and, and we can never have enough. I mean, every day a request of some sort comes across my desk of a way that we can generate some more data. And we have to be very strategic about it. So we need to understand the the whole landscape, you know, who's using it, where are we going to store it? What are the implications of having it? What are the costs involved of having it? You know, and, and making sure that, you know, if there's a particular sensor that we only want to run at one cycle a second at one hertz, then let's run it at that. You don't run that at 10,000 hertz just because you can. You need to make sure that we're, you know, even more so maybe a Haas where we're trying to really maintain that kind of lean, agile approach to technology. You know, it's making sure that we absolutely get the data that we need to do our jobs, but we don't get the data that we don't, if that makes sense. What kind of products do you then lean on, certainly from an honest point of view, in terms of then getting that data around the world and interpreted and, and shared with the right people? Where Ionos provide us value is in the cloud computing, the cloud resource. So the main selling point for want of a word of the cloud is its scalability so you know again because we're quite a small team and we keep a fairly lean set of infrastructure if i want to scale up or i want to do something bigger but for a shorter period of time then the cl then cloud technology works for me because at the moment 
if I was to develop a system on-prem, let's take a, a good example of something we are doing with Ionos in terms of, of car setup. So we have some in-house software and mathematical models of the car, and we will typically run a load of simulations on them through some mathematics software to give an idea of how we'll set the car up for a given track in a given conditions in given surroundings. And that piles out a bunch of numbers and that goes to the circuit. And, and, and the guys and girls do use those numbers to help set the car up. Now, if I want to run a big set of simulations, if, and I run that on-premise, I have to scale up my architecture, you know, my capital expense to the peak of that load. You know, let's say for one of a number, 100 computers. So I have to buy 100. Now, if 80% of that time, I'm only using 20 of those, that means those 80% there that's sitting downstairs being cooled, being, you know, being powered. When it breaks, I'll have to have engineers that know what they're doing to go down and fix it. Then it's going to be, you know, depreciated and I've got depreciation costs. And so you've got this all this legacy. It's a bit of an old school model of doing it. Much sort of better for that particular purpose and for actually a number of our sort of applications is to put it on a scalable platform, which is where the cloud comes in. So what I can do in in that particular instance is say to the team, okay, when you're about to run your simulations, you scale up your resource in the cloud, you churn the numbers, you can have a thousand computers if that's what you want. And then as soon as you're done, you turn it off and the cost stops and somebody else is taking care of the power. Someone else is taking care of the cooling. If it breaks, I don't care because I just find another computer in the cloud to, to do it on. That cloud model suits that kind of peak and trophy workload that F1 has in, in you know, I, I use one example, but there's many others. And Mandy, is cloud scalability particularly effective in the F1 partnership or is this something that Ionos sees across a multitude of businesses? I mean, of course, scalability is hugely important and effective for Haas due to the incredible amount of data points they collect and, and continue to collect. But scalability is a key benefit of the cloud for anyone. The whole premise behind cloud is that you as a user don't have to worry about the hardware you need. Your cloud provider will deal with all the physical kit and it's already there waiting virtually for you when you're ready. So if you need resources, you simply add them from the cloud. A nice side benefit of that is you only pay for what you need when you need it. So another little side benefit. But you know, these days, this is really particularly relevant with the global chip shortage we have, which is making it harder and and lengthier to get physical kit. So utilizing a cloud vendor means that the heavy lifting of obtaining and maintaining the servers is done for you. So your business can still scale quickly without the weight, really. To scale an on-premise platform, you you can't just add a server to your infrastructure. You you also need to integrate it with the existing systems that, you know, the, the OS. Cloud automatically handles all of that for you. Of course, every organization is different and not all will need rapid scalability that, that cloud offers. So it doesn't apply to everybody. But I guess that's another difference between IONOS and a pure hosting service where you just kind of get off the shelf products. Our technical consultants work directly with our customers, such as Haas, to understand their needs and find the right solutions together so that they have a bespoke solution that meets their end business goals, really. And you mentioned how some of that data will go to the team at the track and they'll use it for setup and things like that when you've run those simulations. How much, though, is done by the humans off the back of that? And how much is this data used to then, for machine learning-wise, is there like a split where you go, okay, this is something we're going to entrust to engineers and people, and this is something actually much rather than trust to a machine? Yeah, so there's pros and cons. So if we talk about sort of machine learning and, and AI technologies, the, the key thing at has for us and where we're looking at that technology is to streamline and focus the, the resource that we do have. So we need to be taking away repetitive and sort of, more calculation based parts of their job and get you know and we can get software to do that for us that means again they can focus on what they or maybe the bits that that the technology can't do 
you've got the human at the end of it is still the last cog, for want of a better word. I'm trying to get my words. Is the, the you know in terms of putting that into action. So you can have all the technology and the software churning away and spitting out a set of numbers, but ultimately we still have a finite number of people that will look at it. And that's where they put the human, you know, I don't say fudge factor, experience factor. It's the human experience factor, isn't it? To say, okay, the numbers are telling me to do X, but I know that's not quite why I'm going to do X plus a little bit. And more often than not, they'll get it right. That's where O's and ones are, are still not quite there yet. It's coming. It's definitely coming. I think all the teams are looking at how the human decision-making and that experience factor can be done through huge analytics of past events. I mean, you know, there's 60-odd years of Formula One data kicking around, you know, not necessarily a has, but just in, in the public domain that can feed into, you know, an AI or a machine learning algorithm to say, mm, I'm starting to spot some patterns here and I can start to apply them. So the data's there. And as we go through, you know, consuming video and consuming car data, you know, we're building up a data landscape that technology can really work. But at the end of the day, I think it's still a human sport and you'll still have guys and girls applying their trade and their experience, you know, at the, at the last mile. But if the human then is at the end of the chain almost and the final call, Formula One's all about you know, the slightest, tiniest margins that you can try and find minute gains anywhere. And obviously a lot of data can all go into one thousandth of a second of a, a gain in terms of a setup, whatever. Is it possible for humans to be able to do that or is it more effective for data and machines to be able to do that? I think where the technology is at the moment, I still think the human is best at doing that. You know, the human mind you know, is incredible and, and its ability to take in so many factors and experience being one of them, you know, you know gut, we talk a lot about gut feel, but that's a re- it's a real thing, you know, and that's applied a lot more than maybe people realise. That's what technology can't provide. So it can provide a, loads of inputs into that. But I think the human mind is still the right tool to make most of those decisions when it comes down, you know, and that's why it's still motor racing. You know, the moment a machine races completely, then that's not a sport anymore. Would it be fair to say then, because we talk and focus quite a lot on the track stuff, it's, it's what fans see. They see a practice session qualifying race. They see a car out on track. They rarely see behind the scenes at a factory and the work going on here uh, where we sit now to record. Is a lot of the data that you're gathering then more commonly used here? It, essentially, is this all built on data, this factory and the work that people are doing compared to maybe track side? It's, it is that human touch still and direct link to the driver, direct engineer experience that makes that a little bit more of a human factor is track side compared to factory? No, I'd say they're about the same, if I'm honest. Yeah, the data is what everybody uses to do their jobs, but they are still ultimately doing their jobs, if that makes sense. So, you know, whether that's business data, but, you know, finances, IT, IT personnel, yeah, human resources personnel, you know, they're using massive subsets of data to be able to do their jobs, just like, you know, the, the performance data is enabling performance teams to do theirs. Formula One is a very secretive sport, though. Again, you know, I mentioned the factory because this is a, a space that people don't get to see very often and, and understandably teams don't want other teams seeing into their factories or knowing what they're doing how much do you have to worry about protecting your data how much of the data is it that you gather that needs to be kept confidential i would say all of it actually you know our data is our ip and that can be uh, anything from you know our business data is is in terms of our business model is very heavily protected you know we like our business model we like what we do and we think it would it would take a while to replicate correctly but then also the car I would say I'm less concerned about other teams and privacy to other teams. You know, it's quite a respectful sport. I think more it's people using the data for their own personal gain, you know, on a global stage. You know, we're seeing every day big companies and big teams, you know, their data being used for questionable purposes. That's probably of a bigger concern. You know, obviously, we don't treat other teams differently, quite frankly. We, you know, we just protect our data, protect the perimeter. And 
you know, that way we know that we're, you know, we we'll try to be as secure as we possibly can. And Mandy, how does Ionos help protect that data when so much of it is stored in the cloud? Wow, that's a great question. When we developed our own cloud platform, data security was a major consideration. So by building our own cloud stack, it was much easier to implement this than by relying on other services. In fact, data security is basically one of our very key focuses. We have more than 20 years of experience in building and running data centers. So, you know, we take all of that knowledge and learning and apply all of that in every undertaking. So, you know, from my perspective and from an IONIS perspective, relationships are built on trust and our customers trust us to secure their data. So that is basically, you know, the cornerstone of our relationship with our customers. Yeah, I was going to say, like, how important is data protection in terms of Arnus's list of priorities? I'm, I'm assuming it's very important. Yeah, I mean, data protection, both in terms of protecting the physical safety and the, and the integrity of the data, but also, obviously, in preventing third parties from illegitimate access, that's at the core of our business. While we have a subsidiary in the U.S., Ionis is first and foremost a European company, which means that GDPR has become our Bible in terms of privacy practice. And our headquarters is in Germany, where there are some of the strictest data protection laws in the world. Plus, being a European company bound to GDPR, we are also not subject to the snooping laws like the U.S. Cloud Act. And I'm not sure if you're um, familiar with that, but Under the U.S. Cloud Act, the American government can basically demand access to any data hosted by a U.S. company, regardless of whether that data is actually hosted in the U.S. As long as a company is a U.S. company, they can take it. And you don't even know they're doing it as the end customer that, you know, they ask the cloud provider and, you know, you may not even realize that it's going on. So security is certainly, like I said, at the heart of our company and and making sure that our customer's data is protected is, is key. That probably then explains why it's not so easy for fans to know or see everything or get all the data that maybe they would love to have. But do you see aspects of the sport, of the team, of the data channels you have that could be fed to fans a bit more to help their understanding of the sport and to maybe help boost its popularity? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, F1's come such a long way as well in the last sort of five or seven years in that front. You know, Liberty have, have done a great job in getting fans connected because I think that's one of the big attractions for Formula One. I know many people that will watch the sport with a laptop to the side, you know, getting some, some data feeds, whether that's from F1 themselves or from, you know, some of the teams provide that as well. I think that's going to grow. You know, Liberty have got big plans for the sport in that. And there's definitely huge amounts of data. And I'm put, I put my, my own hat on here as a race fan. There's loads of data that you love to see. You know, if we look at the at the last race and, and those last laps, there wasn't an F1 fan not on the edge of their seat, right? It doesn't matter who you were a fan of. You know, I'm not representing either of those teams, but I was on the edge of my seat. And if you can, you serve up, you know, what's going on, you know, what's going on with Max and Lewis's pulse rates, for instance, you know, is there human data that we can start looking at? I think that's going to connect people. They're going to feel like they're there. You know, and then that feeds into esports. You know, um, again, you know, you know, you can imagine a world where you could play live an esports game and you could be on that last lap with those drivers. But in your game world, that's all possible. When you say that though, about like heart rate data and things like that, is this all stuff that you still gather for the team to maybe aid driver performance, that sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so driver biometrics and and crew member biometrics is something that we're looking at and working with, understanding. You know, we, we need to get everybody that can be, you know, driver or a pit stop person or maybe the most public, but actually everybody at their at their peak performance. Because as soon as you start getting maybe fatigue, you know, that's where, you know, we talked about that sort of human element and that human decision making. We want to make sure that people are at the able to do their best work. 
and you know understanding what's going on with people you know at Haas we have quite a, a big well-being program and again that's you know it was almost a taboo subject 10 years ago because it was such a sort of a masculine sport that's gone now and, and I think the sport's done a really great job of being able to you know get staff performing at their best and loving what they do right as soon as somebody likes what they're doing and they're being looked after then you know they start to perform well and that those metrics you know all data is all being captured and, and all being understood is that why the cloud's been so important to you guys then because this sounds like some of them are new avenues that just suddenly open up almost overnight someone has the idea you know we should be focusing on that or looking into that and suddenly you need at least for a short spell you need more capacity yeah 100 percent. in fact i can give you a real world example of that just last week and so we had some software which it was more rather than human performance it was more car performance software that we thought would make quite a difference at this fairly late stage for the for the 22 program but it was very computational heavy now you know there's very well documented lead times on semiconductors you know try ordering a new car at the moment right so you know just buying some capital tin and putting it downstairs is you know a months long exercise at best what we can do with the cloud and ionos have a great sort of gui system where you can just log on scale up some compute and uh, really 15 to 20 minutes later i can present that technology to the team lead and a couple hours later they're running the software you know that is a game changer and i think every team is is using that now you know to give that sort of instant reaction to you know if you've got a clever person's come up with a great idea what do you want to do you want to give them the tools to exercise that idea as quickly as you can so just we wrap this up if i circle that all the way back then to the very start when you were talking about your role and what you do essentially do you just sit here waiting for well not waiting but waiting for people to come to you and say i need to be able to do this give me the capacity to do it or give me the tools to do it are you essentially trying to find ways through different avenues of giving people that capability yeah that's a really good way of putting it it's exactly what i do Awesome. See, I've learned something. That's the first part. Thank you very much, Guy, for your time. Really appreciate it. And as you say, we're really looking forward to seeing what happens with the 2022 car. And and we won't tell the drivers that you think the data is more important. No, please don't. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening. See you at our next pit stop in two weeks. Drive Digital Success, brought to you by Ionos, first class cloud and IT infrastructure. Production by Digital Compact. Presenters are Mandy Carter and Chris Medland. Music and sound design by raffamusic.com. If you've liked this podcast, recommend it to your friends and give us five stars at your favourite podcast provider.